Housing Lawyer readers and listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Housing News Podcast brought to you by your friends at Housing Wire. Uh, we just started recording the episode numbers on these shows. So this is season one, episode 10. I cannot believe that we've already done uh, 10 of these. We're starting to get um, some of the rust off the wheels and, and learning how to do this, but we uh, can't be more, couldn't be more grateful for all the, the, the feedback and the listens and, uh, and all the new subscribers we've had to the podcast and, and also all the iTunes uh, ratings that you've been giving us. We, we really appreciate that and um, we're thrilled to continue to bring you the top headlines from the Housing Wire newsroom each week and to invite a different mortgage or real estate executive onto the show every single week to add some context and how the, and, and give us some color on how the top headlines and trends and, and news and data in the mortgage industry is actually impacting their business and hopefully add the kind of another layer of knowledge uh, for you, our, our listeners, our, our readers, um, so you can take that information, that, that context and insight provided by the lending execs that we have as guests on the show um, back to your business and be more impactful lending and mortgage professionals. Uh, but before we get started and introduce this week's guest, I want to give a special thank you to Blend. Blend is our sponsor for this uh, season one of the Housing News Podcast, and Blend is a digital mortgage platform that streamlines the loan process with an efficient, secure, and transparent customer experience. Blend powers both industry-leading teams at some of the nation's largest lenders, as well as regionally focused credit unions and community banks. With over a billion dollars in loans processed every single day, every Blend partnership is benchmarked on delivering a truly exceptional customer experience. To learn more about Blend, visit blend.com. So this week we have a, a special guest. This guest is the, the CEO of a, of a, of a mortgage lender, um, particular uh, focus on the, the, the wholesale market, but a lot of experience across the, across the mortgage industry. Um, we have Rich Wydell. He's the CEO of Princeton Mortgage. Rich, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Clayton. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a real privilege. You know, it, it, it's fun for me in that um, the last couple of years, Housing Wire has had an increasingly, uh, or it's consumed more and more of my time, uh, which is a real testament to what you guys are, are building and just the relevance of it. So it's really fun to sit down with you guys today. I appreciate it. <laughs> we're we're, uh, we're thrilled to hear that. Uh, I think I, I've told you before, but we we, we do this for, for mortgage lenders and real estate professionals. So um, kind of f feedback from, from you and having you read us every day is exactly uh, why we're here and why we have a job and a business. So so thank you. Yeah, you guys are doing such a good job that I've had to like manage my consumption of housing wire. <laughs> Wait, I spent three hours today getting inundated and looking at news articles. So I, I have a special <laughs> mailbox for you that I have to, you know, it's like my iPhone. You got the screen time limit. I need a housing wire limit. <laughs> that is, um, I'm sure our, when our newsroom listens to this, they uh, hopefully um, will be grinning from ear to ear or, or blushing. But uh, I know they will be thrilled to hear that we have uh, such loyal fans. So, so thank you, Rich. And, and honestly, I, I didn't invite you on this show just to, just to charm us. We really want to hear your insights. But um, we, uh, being a news organization, a media company, we, we really value storytelling. And we think there's a, an incredible amount of really interesting people in the mortgage industry and a lot of executives come from pretty diverse backgrounds um, that are doing great things in the industry. Uh, so before we get started, I'd love for our audience to, to understand who, who you are. Um, who is Rich Wydell and uh, how'd you get started in the mortgage industry? Yeah, so I um, <clears throat> excuse me, I did my undergraduate at Cornell where I studied economics. I actually started off with agribusiness degree there. I grew up on a farm and it was a dream come true because I had a business school in the agriculture college. Um, 
I fell in love with somebody though, who's over in the arts and sciences school, who she's now my wife, wanted to spend more time with her. So I transferred over to uh, the liberal arts college and studied economics, fell in love with it. Um, the elegance of the models, the understanding of the world, choice, scarcity, those types of things. Uh, graduated in 2009 when the world was falling apart, there was no jobs. And I kind of hung out for another year and got a master's in real estate finance where I really studied capital markets, securitization, and those types of things. That led to, um, didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I was really interested in real estate, really interested in finance side of those things. So I uh, took a job with Goldman Sachs in the commercial mortgage group there. So there was, they also had a residential group, but there was nothing really going on on the RNBS side. So started off on the CMBS side, um, had a great experience. We did origination, securitization, financing, structuring, that type of stuff. And I learned kind of three important lessons there. Uh, I think that ties into some of the conversation today. The first being, um, Goldman had a real performance culture. It was up or out. They spent an immense amount of energy recruiting the most talented people they could get um, and then setting up a culture where they could perform at their best. So I, so I really fell in love with sort of work as a sport, work at getting better every day and working with really talented people. And, and that's something that's really tied into what we're doing here at Princeton Mortgage. The second thing, and I think this will inform today's conversation is, um, while I said I'm an economist, um, as a student of economics, I'm, I'm also really distrustful of economic forecasting, and there's a big difference. We live in a world of economic reality. Um, economic forecasting is delusional. So we sat next to the interest rate traders, and these guys were brilliant people who did interest rate trading across the entire world. They did macroeconomic trends, everything. So every time we, we, do, we did the large loan, so I think the biggest loan we did was maybe like $1.3 billion. And it's hard to hedge a loan like that for interest rate movement while you have it on your books and then you need to securitize and sell it. So I was there um, post-crisis and they constantly were putting these huge hedges on because they were certain that interest rates were going to go up. This is 2010, 11 time period. Interest rates never went up. So the smartest guys there were saying interest rates are going to go up. We have to put these expenses hedges on. They never, they never, it never happened and it cost us a lot of money. So we started to wonder like, if these guys who are super smart with this forever can't get interest rates right, what's going on here? The third thing I learned is the people in that group, so the, the real estate finance group at Goldman Sachs, um, I thought were really good people. They were part of really, really bad decisions pre-crisis that led to a horrible situation for the entire country. And so what I learned is that really good people wind up making really bad decisions if they have the wrong incentives. And, and I think that that kind of sums up what, the, what happened with the housing crisis. And I think it's, it's easy for us to watch movies like The Big Short and read about this stuff and, and say, these were all bad people. And I think I went into the situation believing that. I came out and said, these aren't bad people. Just the incentive structure was really wrong and that good people will make bad decisions if they have the wrong incentives. Um, so following that, I wanted to get my, my hands dirty and had an opportunity, I mean, down in the trenches, and I had, I had the chance to join um, a large real estate owner in Florida that had about a billion two worth of real estate um, that had about a billion dollars of debt on it. Overnight, the crisis hit, it went, it was worth 800 million and he was termed defaulting on everything. And I went down to help with the asset management, capital markets and working with the banks on restructuring. And I got a chance at that point to both um, learn really the capital market side of how do these private equity institutions work? We worked with probably five of the top 10 largest private equity institutions um, in the restructuring and, and saw how they thought about things, what it was like to have them as partners, 
what it was like to be on the opposite side of them where they're trying to foreclose on you and you're trying to avoid that. Um, and, and had just a fabulous experience doing that for a couple of years. And then the last few years I've been here with Princeton Mortgage. We're a 35 year old organization um, that operated primarily in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, conservative, built up a, a pretty sizable balance sheet and really restructured our business model in January, 2017. So we, ended a couple of business lines that we had and we said let's let's kind of build this company from the ground up and so I took over as CEO with with four objectives um, the first was our team I really wanted to build a performance culture where we hired we were, we were, we were able to hire the best people uh, and foster an environment where they could thrive the second was our customers we were all about our customers 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 and uh, we've done some really innovative things there that's actually led to us being the top one percent in customer satisfaction in the country right now out of about a thousand mortgage companies that report their customer satisfaction. Third thing was growth. Third thing was growth. We wanted to build predictable, scalable growth. Um, and we've achieved that. We've, we've gone up over 10 times uh, in our sales since January, 2017. So we, we've achieved pretty remarkable growth. But the fourth and most, pro most important thing was that uh, we wanted to operate the company efficiently and be really dis disciplined about the economics of scaling the company profitably. Uh, and so it was the fourth thing to really be disciplined about how we, how we do that. So that's where we're at today. We're having a great time. Uh, every day is a struggle, but we're, we're finding success and enjoying it. So going back to like your, your, your earliest days. So, so back at Cornell, I, I uh, so scoping out your, your LinkedIn profile. I noticed that you were the editor of the Cornell real estate review. Didn't know we had a, uh, a fellow um, uh, real estate uh, journalist type on the, on the podcast today. What was, what was that responsibility? And how, did that, uh, did that role on the real estate review kind of influence your kind of analytical look at the industry as you've kind of gone through, Goldman to the development side or the lending side? Yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, it was an awesome experience. We put out um, twice a year, we put out a real estate review um, or we, we published a real estate review. I was a contributing author and the editor. And I, I think what was so cool about that discipline is, is it's kind of like doing a thesis paper where you get the chance to say, I have a thesis. Let me see. If, and, and at that point I was um, really into um, economic modeling and things like that. And so really saying, I have a thesis, let me see if this, if the data toys this out and plays that out. And so, um, and when you start to put yourself out there in that way, it leads to some really interesting connections. And so actually in a, in a roundabout way that kind of led to my job at Goldman Sachs. And so I think, I think it's so important to, you know, everybody talks about authenticity. The downside of authenticity is doing what you and I are doing right now, which is we're going to put ourselves out there today with some opinions that are opinions. They, and they might open us up to being wrong. Uh, but I, but I, I published um, some articles that, that somebody invited me to blog for them. Uh, one of my blogs went relatively uh, viral where I was talking about stochastic modeling and real estate valuation where we all have these point in time pro formas and we can talk about that. It, it, you know, we're going to talk a little bit today about Stern's lending in chapter 11. Well, well, they probably had a pro forma that said this. Economic reality did did something different and they hadn't modeled for the, for the ability to survive that variance between what they expected reality to be and what reality was. Um, and then that got picked up by somebody who was pretty high up at Goldman and we had dinner and sort of the rest is history. So it's a long way of saying um, it was really fun. I enjoyed it and I enjoyed conversations like this because they give you a chance to slow down and think deeply about topics. And, and so often, you know, you guys put out these great news articles but it's understanding what are the fundamental truths behind these news articles that's driving the news that gets really interesting. I think when you do something like putting out a, a, a 
real estate review at, in, in academia, you get to do that. That's awesome. That's, that's great. Uh, that's great exposure. I, I'd be, I'd die to like, uh, kind of see some of those, um, the, the, the tests that you, you ran back in, uh, back in your college days and see how, um, those would, would back test today. <laughs> that's probably a conversation for, for, for a different day. Um, yeah, but, I did. I actually did one of my theses. Oh, you did. My, my thesis was on, um, I sort of, I, I, I took it, I did an economic regression on, so I had data 60,000 home transactions and I looked at, could you tease out um, the performance of how the, the, the house, meaning the performance time on market or list price to sale price uh -huh. on the commission structure of the real estate agents? So how much do commissions affect the real estate transaction? And um, I think that's a, it's a super relevant analysis today because over the last six months, I'm, I'm, if you look know at the company Purple Bricks, they're a real estate company. Yeah, yeah. Just some headlines about them this week. So we run an affiliated real estate company. And about a year ago, um, one of our managers left and went to Purple Bricks. And so I started like, you know, really looking into it. I'm seeing all this stuff about it. Then I heard the, the CEO at the Inman conference a couple months ago talk. talk and I said, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. Then I had, had a friend who um, runs an investment fund that, that owns about 10% of Purple Bricks. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm having dinner with him and he's telling me about how he's going to earn a 10x return on it. And it's amazing. And it's disrupting the industry. And I'm sitting here going, economic reality says this isn't going to work. But I felt very wrong. Like kind of kept my mouth shut. Like maybe I'm missing something. Well, that paper, the thesis I had done said that the commission structure actually really does affect the performance of a real estate transaction. And so Purple Brick said, we're going to pay our, our real estate agents much less, but we're going to sell prices for more money and faster. Uh, it turns out they blew through, I think I saw online, $55 million and are pulling out of the U.S. now. And so it's, a, it, 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 again, and I think, that, I think what, what I want to bring to this conversation today is that you can only cheat economic reality for so long. And I think we, we see a lot of people in residential real estate and mortgages um, cheating economic reality. And that cannot continue forever. So yeah, we, we covered that that story this week that um, Purple Bricks is pulling out of uh, the U.S. and and Australia, and I think the they cited um, uh, the, a focus on profitability, aka they weren't profitable in in, in these two markets. Um, maybe grew a little too quickly. Uh, so bring that back to that. <clears throat> your that reminds me reminds me of a joke. Let's hear it. So yes, the CEO says, not a I lose knock joke, is it? No, but it's not that funny. So imagine that, but essentially the CEO says, I lose money on everything I sell. So they get asked, well, then how do you stay in business? Well, I make it up on volume. <laughs> and like, you know, we keep seeing that story play out. And, and when you get um, companies in our, in, our industries are really hard. They're, they're, they're pretty commoditized. And when you get people that have access to capital that allow them to defy economic reality in the short run, it usually leads to bad decisions um, that get paid for later. So do you think that that reality of access to capital, kind of changing business model and, and changing focus uh, has been fueled by some of the, the business formation that we've seen coming out of, of Silicon Valley that might be kind of flowing into more traditional industries and, and business models that just can't operate that way? Yeah, so, so I think it's interesting two things. I think that you have to say 
are you truly disrupting something? So there's a lot of people that want to say, we're the Amazon of, right? We're the Amazon of real estate. We're the Amazon of mortgage. Well, Amazon truly had an innovative business model that disrupted an industry. So I've heard people in this industry say that they're the Amazon of mortgage. Are they the Amazon of mortgage or are they just willing to make less money than everybody else? And they're calling that an innovative. Now they say, does Amazon give you the cover to say, well, Amazon doesn't make any money and they're so successful. So I don't have to make any money either. Eventually I will. I think that works if you're actually creating an innovative business model. So for example, if we go back to the real estate space, which I think has had, had more innovation in the mortgage space, Keller Williams was an innovative disruptive business model that, um, had, that, that was able to, to change the real estate industry. Remax was an innovative uh, disruptive business model back in the 70s that changed it. I, I'm not seeing that today, but I'm seeing people call themselves that. So, so Compass comes to mind in this situation. And I think there's a lot of parallels here. They've got a $4.4 billion valuation, uh, I think 800 million of cash or something like that. And, and I read a Wall Street Journal article recently where the CEO of Compass, Robert Refkin, says this, short-term profitability is something that many of the more modern companies are not as focused on. Now, they've raised a lot of money. They've got a ton of volume. Uh, I also saw an article the other day that said, they must have some other amazing strategy that we don't know about because if you look at them as just a traditional real estate company, they're really bad. Everybody, the industry averages an 18% gross margin. They've only got a 12% gross margin. So what's economic reality say to that? Um, and can you just keep growing and make it up on volume or not? I think history is harsh to those that, that go down that path. But, but can you, with a certain access to capital, can you buy your way into market share and then adjust margin later? Like, could, could that be the, the play here? I mean, we're, we're seeing I'm sure that look on the market share that they are, are picking up right now and, and then in talking to traditional brokerages in different regions that are, that are losing their, their, their best agents to, to compass and others um, that are, that have more favorable agent, um, models. And, uh, and so, I, I mean, it the, the industry is not going anywhere next year, but could, could someone buy market share and then adjust the business model on the back end? So, so let's think about who, who has successfully done that. I, I'm unaware of anybody. Um, the, the, you can go and buy market share and you can inflict a huge amount of damage on the industry along the way. <clears throat> but the question is, so, so in the residential real estate industry where there's, or the mortgage industry, where there's relatively low barriers to entry. Um, can you ever get enough scale to actually affect margins in a commodity industry? So, so, what, so what, would it, what would be a similar situation here would be, I think you had a lot of mortgage lenders uh, post-crisis have that strategy, right? Maybe, maybe Stearns, we're going to talk about that, is an example of we're going to go get a bunch of market share and we're going to have high margins and we're going to make all this money. Don't worry about being profitable today. We'll get it later. Well, what happens? Mortgage brokers step in. Mortgage brokers step in and start taking away market share because they have a more nimble model and it turns out that the distributed retail model is a pretty expensive model. You don't ever seem to really pick up those economies at scale. 
and mortgage brokers jump in and, and start to blow that model up. And so I think it's really hard for a real estate company or mortgage lender to say, I'm going to amass so much market share that I will be able to control margins. I just don't think we've ever seen that. Well, I think we saw a pretty uh, n notable example of a lending model that didn't work just this week. Um, we, we covered a, a story that I, I think by the time we, we air this, everybody in the industry will, will have read. Um, so Stern's lending declares chapter 11, um, uh, Blackstone stepping in and uh, taking a majority of the ownership. The, the story has kind of un unfolded in the last 24 hours that seems to be a, a little bit of a, a battle between um, in, in Blackstone and, and PIMCO uh, around the debt that might've expedited um, this this filing but uh as we're talking about profitability of, of of mortgage lenders and the scalability of the, the the lending model um what do you what do you think about this headline and how does it play into um how, how you're thinking about building princeton and how you're thinking about the industry as a whole so this is such a fun story and, and not, not fun at Stern's expense at all, but, but fun to think about um, what, what drives outcomes like this. So the, I'm sure the management team I've heard over at Stern's is, is really bright. They were really experienced. They've been successful. The people at Blackstone, really smart, really successful. The people at PIMCO, really smart, really successful, who now all find themselves in a horrible situation. Um, that's the result of a lot of bad decisions. So what, what drives that? Um, I have a book <clears throat> on my shelf I look at all the time, and it's called Leadership and Self-Deception. And the reason I, I keep it here, and I think actually the, the title of the book might be better than the contents of the book, <laughs> but the, the point is that the easiest person to deceive is ourselves. And, and, and there's a couple of things that, that are probably at play that cause that, that, I, that I think for anybody listening to this that's entrepreneurial, whether that's a loan officer managing their own finances, a mortgage broker, a mortgage company, I think that you have to have real humility around your ability to predict the future and your ability to deceive yourself. So, so I think the story goes something like this. Um, all right, we go out. I think Stern sold about 70% of their company to Blackstone in 2015. So when you, when, you, when you do that, you have to tell a story about future performance. People make an investment today based on what the future is going to look like. So I, I had an experience recently where um, we had to put a pro forma together. Somebody asked us for a pro forma. One of our investors said, I, I want to see what the, the next 12 months looks like. Um, and I put up my hands and I said, I, I have no idea. We can barely predict the next three months. You know, we're getting okay at that. But I have no idea the next 12 months. And they go, well, what do you mean? We, we need a pro forma. And I, go, I, I don't know. Is Russia going to invade? right? Does, does North Korea blow off a nuke? Like, I have no clue. What are interest rates going to do? And they looked at me and said, well, we're going to need a pro forma. All right, I, I, fine. I'll, I'll give you a pro forma. So I gave him pro forma that says, you know, here, and, 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 and the real answer to that question is, our model is we have a target of a 20% uh, return. We will make whatever decisions we need such that within a like 90 day or 120 day period, we bring our, our, our business in line with a 20% return. That's our pro forma. So maybe that means we shrink. Maybe that means we grow. Maybe that we will deal with economic reality. So when Blackstone joins, they probably say, I need to make this level of return over this period of time. And, and the management team at Stern says, 
great. We will do that. We can do that. And they make these commitments, right? And be, yep. between human beings, when you make a commitment, and if you're a successful executive, you got to live up to that. Well, then what happens? 2018 happens. Interest rates go up. All right. Interest rates go up. What happens when interest rates go up? Interest rates go up. Refinances go away. There's overcapacity. Margins shrink. The industry hits 10-year um, lowest profitability in 10 years. All right. That's reality. That's economic reality. It's a bad time to do mortgages in 2018. The right decision is probably to shrink, right? Get smaller, preserve your capital, get ready for, for, for when the market gets better and then go. Well, you've just promised Blackstone and these other, and Blackstone has promised their investors a certain return that doesn't say, we only want this return if the market does certain things. We want this return or we're going to take the company from it. So now you have to increase profitability. So what do you do to increase profitability in a bad marketplace that's got low margins? Well, there's like four options. You can add leverage. Now, as I say that, it's really interesting to think about something that Warren Buffett always says. He says, it's really hard to go out of business if you don't have leverage, right? Leverage increases returns, but it increases risk. You can add credit or borrower risk. You can add interest rate risk. Those are the three things yep. that you can do. And then the fourth option would be you can hunker down and shrink and wait, wait for the storm to pass. So it sounds like what Stearns did, and again, I, you know, this is just an outsider's perspective, is they said, we promised a certain return. We built our model based on high margins, right? So we have a high cost structure. Um, reality was different. We couldn't get those margins, so we layered on more risk, but it turns out that we mispriced that risk in terms of we took on more leverage than we should have, and here we are. So, so that's that self-deception, and it ties into – um, economic forecasting. And so they probably deceived themselves, or, or at least this is something I'm very cautious of doing to myself is deceiving myself that I can predict the future. Um, I posted something on LinkedIn last week that was really interesting. The Wall Street Journal did a study in, in January. They asked 50, 50 economists where they thought the interest rates would be at the end of June. The economists all said um, the average they came out with was like 3.39%. And um, the lowest that anybody said was 2.5%. And I think the actual was like 1.95%. It was lower than 2%. So nobody of the 50 top economists in the country were anywhere close on interest rates. So I post this online. You know what, you know what happened in the comments section? A whole bunch of people said, I can predict interest rates. I have done it. I know how to do it. And it's like, wow, all of... All of the data shows that nobody can predict interest rates. This, this, is, this is pretty factual. Yet, all we see in the interest, and by, by the way, predicting interest rates means predicting profitability, predicting company growth, predicting what's going to happen in the mortgage industry. And so if you make decisions based on that prediction and you don't build in for variants of reality differing for that, you get yourself in big trouble and that's what happened to Stearns. I, I, I suspect. I suspect that they, they had too much belief in their own predictions of where the economy was going. Okay, so let's try to take this conversation somewhere that our, our, our listeners can kind of take some value, think about how they can better, better manage their businesses. And I'm 100% with you that, that performers largely BS. You, you never see a performer that's, um, that's, that's trending down. It's always uh, up and to the right, sometimes a hockey stick. Who yeah. knows? Depend, <laughs> depends on the forecaster. But with, the, with not being able to predict uh, your origination volume and profitability going out more than more than three months and going back to the, the, the four fundamentals that you mentioned in, in running Princeton, how do you plan for 
controlled, sustainable, and profitable growth. Because you know, I know that when a market opportunity presents itself, whether that's lower rates, opening up a refi market, inventory supporting um, a purchase environment, or, or generational trends we're seeing right now supporting supporting a purchase market. If you're not staffed appropriately, if you haven't invested in the right technology, if you haven't planned for that opportunity that presents itself, it's some, you, you can't take advantage and someone else is going to eat your lunch. So um, in a, operating in an industry um, with a high degree of uncertainty, how do you plan for growth? And as an executive and, and as another entrepreneur, I, I think about this all, all the time. I'm tr trying to figure out how, how do you allocate capital? How do you allocate resources to take advantage of opportunities to grow your business and better serve your clients? And I imagine that's something you're thinking about too. Yeah, I, I think it's relatively simple and very hard to do. <clears throat> and, and the answer to it is that, um, Jack Welch says, you know, um, says the team that sees reality best wins. And I think it's not just the team that sees reality best. It's the team that sees reality best and has the ability to take action based on reality. Um, I had a conversation earlier this year with a CEO of a top 10 lender. <clears throat> and while I'm, I'm most, if you, if you, if you listen to what most of the CEOs are saying is no matter what's going on in the economy, we're going to grow. We're going to grow. We're going to grow. We're hiring. We're growing. We're growing. We're growing. Um, and we've got some other things that again, defy economic reality. So I was at a aim conference recently, which, which was an awesome conference. I think what Anthony Costa is doing in that, that whole space is, is awesome. And the keynote speaker was Matt Ishby over at UWM. And he said something that, that really has stuck with me. Um, obviously they've been wildly successful. I think earlier this year, they were the, the number one lender in the United States um, in production. So, They've got a lot of volume, back to my original joke. I make it up on volume. But he said this, and I found it in a, in a quote also. He said, return on investment is always a ridiculous thought process. Don't think like that. Think about winning. Man, that scares the crap out of me. The, I am not trying to win at all costs because you cannot. That's Quixotic. What you can do is say, I'm going to show up every single day, not I'm going to be very transparent. You know, we're an open book company. The reason that we're an open book company is because I want short-term discomfort over long-term dysfunction. And so by sharing everything with everybody within the company, we open ourselves up to huge amounts of feedback loops and criticism from everybody here who wants the company to succeed. They don't want the company to succeed today. They want the company to succeed for the long run so that they have their jobs. And, and so I think it's back to your original question. The way that you do predictable scalable growth is you have to grow um, at a certain rate. So the CEO of Southwest Airlines, 25% um, a year was the most that he would ever let the company grow because that's all that he could do and do it predictably. <clears throat> and then you have to decide when to pull back. Back to my other comment, I, I met the CEO of a top 10 lender and he said this, he said, look, it's a horrible time to do mortgages right now. And so I'm shrinking. So, well, well aren't you going to lose you know, the capacity to take advantage of, of, of if interest rates drop and do all this stuff and you're doing layoffs and all these horrible things. He goes, look, the reality is that those are very horrible decisions, but if I don't preserve my capital, I'm just stealing from tomorrow. I'm going to go out of business later because if I take, if I do loans right now that I'm not getting compensated enough for that risk, at some point that'll force me to go out of business or I'll have huge losses. And, and if the opportunity comes, the market gets better. I will go buy a more, another mortgage company so that I can staff up quickly and take advantage of it. Man, it's exactly what that company did. They, and these are really hard decisions. They did a lot of layoffs. And then when the market conditions improved, they bought another company in order to staff back up quickly. 
Now you have to ask yourself to see, are you willing to do that? So we don't have the same tolerance for mass layoffs, which means we're okay making less money in refi booms because we don't, we have decided as a company, we've had this conversation, we don't want to staff up and then do major layoffs because it's just not the relationships that we want to have and the type of company that we want to be. But we're honest about that then. And, and so we're leaving money on the table right now, but we're okay with that because then it means we don't have to do major layoffs um, when rates go back up. So I think, again, you just have to make the decisions about who you want to be and be willing to change course if reality dictates it. Do you think that the ability to make that decision is a, a luxury that certain capital structures afford you? And then there's um, all about who, who's the owner, who's the founder, where the money come from. And I think that there are lenders in, in the top 10 and, and much further down the, the league tables that, um, that don't have that luxury because their, their capital source um, is, uh, is, is seeking that, that growth at all costs. And there's other lenders in this country um, that have uh, that have owner oper- owner owner operator capital, and like the 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 benefit of being founder led, founder owned, that can can control growth a little bit more. And I and I, I I watch some of the the pains of some of the lenders who are uh, growth at all costs, and um, and you kind of can always trace it back to where the funding comes from. Um, I don't know, it's more of an observation than a, than a question there, but I mean, that, that's what I, uh, like when you start dissecting the decisions that are being made, it always comes back to whose check did they take? Yeah, I think you've got to be really careful about incentives. And so if, if, if I take on an investment partner in Prince Moore's that says, I want a 20% IRR, um, internal rate investment, which means it was a catch up. So every year that I don't give them the 20% IRR, it's going to build and it wipes yeah. out my equity, my ownership in the company, things like that. Well, all I care about then is short-term 20% IRRs. I'm going to push the, the long-term decision-making to deal with that tomorrow, and it's going to lead to all sorts of bad decisions. So I think, I think you have to be really careful in an industry that's as volatile as mortgages, where you've got a nimble capital structure, where you can shrink if you have to, um, and, and set that up. Because I think you know, we all have a master. We all, we all owe somebody something, and their money comes from somewhere. And you need to have the flexibility of saying, this market goes up, this market goes down. There's five years where it's, you know, if you look at the history of the mortgage industry, it's like five years where it's really great, five years where it's really bad, five years where it's really great, five years where it's really bad. And so you have to have a capital structure and an economic model that can, that can navigate that cycle. And if you can do that, you'll do really well. If it's, I grow no matter what and return 20% a year and this much cash on cash return no matter what, it probably doesn't end well. Yeah, I think that's a that five years up, five years down is a, an interesting uh, kind of a, a viewpoint on the industry. I've definitely heard origination leaders kind of talk about advice and coaching to their their top originators, and uh, some good years put some money in the bank because they're not all going to be like that. And um, I think that is a a kind of a good capital allocation and and, um, and balance sheet management uh, ethos to live by for for lenders as well. Which is what's really scary about right now, because we are, we've, we are in uncharted territory. This is the longest recovery that we've ever had in the United States. So are we in a new normal where it's just going to stay like this? Or is there some correction coming that none of us see? Um, that scares me a lot. And I think that we, look, I think that not everybody's going to go out of business and maybe it's not horrible, but, but if you're back to your allocation question, allocation of capital, 
if you're allocating capital, assuming that the next couple of years are going to be just like this year, there's a high likelihood that you're wrong. Um, and so, so since you can't predict that, you just have to do stress testing to your entire machine and say, all right, here's what I think is going to happen. So here's what we're going to do. But if the facts change, I'm willing to change direction. I'm willing to change my mind and I'm willing to behave differently based on that economic reality. And I think we just see way too many leaders uh, in, in this industry and probably all industries who, who have big goals that they state publicly that they're committed to and that becomes their jail sentence and they drive off a cliff. So what do you think are lower risk ways to, to find growth? I mean, there, there's, you see lenders announce, making big hiring announcements. We're going to add X number of LOs in the, in the next nine to 12 months. You see other people launching new products. We, we've covered the, the growth in the, um, the kind of alternative and, and, and non-QM lending products a lot in the last year. Um, like, where do you see, I, I, I'm, I see both of those as different strategies to, to finding volume growth and, and, and profitability growth. But I mean, where, where are you seeing kind of the lower risk? risk areas where lenders can allocate capital but still protect themselves and in, in the circumstance that the market in Q4 or Q1 2020 doesn't look like what we saw in Q2. So I, so I think there's there's three different options in, in to answer this question. The first is we're seeing a ton of people put a lot of money into technology, right? Yeah. We're gonna with the idea being we're going to invest in technology, which is going to increase productivity, which is going to decrease our cost to originate a loan. Um, I, have, I have studied this. I've talked to people. I am unaware of anybody who has actually achieved a lower cost per loan based on the technology that, the technology that they've implemented or built. So I, so I think there's a lot of people doing that because it sounds good. And, and if it works, it's great. I think that the, the you, know, you, you said this is sponsored by Blend. Blend seems like they're doing a fabulous job right now. Could we or any other mortgage originator build a better product than Blend? Or if you did, is there something that's better than Blend that you can just switch to in three years if that comes up and three smart kids from MIT launch something else and raise even more money? So, so there's the technology. I call it the technology fallacy. I, I don't think it's a competitive advantage or differentiator. I think it really just becomes the great equalizer. We all essentially have the same technology right now. And maybe there's a variance over six months or 12 months. I mean, Rocket Mortgage at Quicken was amazing until Blend came along and now we all have it and it's not a competitive advantage. So that's the first way and I don't see that working. The second way is taking on more risk, right? And so, so that's the, there's a lot of headlines right now about the growth in non-QM. Um, some people say they're not riskier loans. I, I, I think they are and I think we see that in the, you know, the, the um, housing credit availability index, which measures risk in the mortgage industry, that's going up at about the same rate that non-QM is going up. Well, that's fine if you want to take more risk to take more loans, but you better price that risk correctly and manage it. So those are the yeah. first two. First is investments in technology. The second is adding on more risk. Well, were I, and at Prince of Mortgage, we don't believe in our ability to properly price and manage that risk. I think those products are too new and we don't know how they're going to perform. So we stay away from them. <clears throat> and we stay away from taking risk on of those and being innovator. Now, the third way of doing it, I think the best way, is to execute really, really well. That means you got to have a great culture. you got to have great people. You have to do great customers. And you have to do all of those really boring things better than your competitors. And you can have a profitable, sustainable model that grows that naturally attracts employees, 
attracts brokers or loan officers if you're in the retail model and attracts customers uh, because you're executing really well. So, so our strategy is I'm glad that other people are innovating and um, I think that's fabulous. We're going to focus on execution. And, and I think to some extent, the, there's, a, there's a risk of innovation that, that people don't understand. And, and I like to tell the story of, of the American West and settlers and pioneers. Have you ever, so do you know what, happened, you know what the pioneers did, right? What did the pioneers yeah. do? Well, they did a lot of things, but they, they, they headed west and claimed land. They headed west and claimed land, land. And what happened to them? They all died and got scalped. And who came next? The settlers. And you know what happened to the settlers? They got fat and happy. And so I love that there's other people that want to be the pioneers in the mortgage industry and try all these really cool things. God bless them. Thank you. I, we would like to execute really, really well and then be a settler coming behind them because I, I think the, the, the first mover advantage is, is, is largely a myth. I mean, the, like, there's been lots of uh, like similar stories about the, the development of technology and infrastructure. I mean, you, you look back to what the government did for us um, dec- decades ago of, of building highways and, and, and even centuries ago and railroad infrastructure that wasn't profitable in the, uh, the initial iteration, but aided um, dec- decades of commerce to come. Um, and then what venture capitalists did for the technology industry and internet um, in the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that really didn't become a real economy um, in, in, until decades later. So those those first movers um, are not 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 always uh, going to be the winners, but they uh, there is a uh, um, a massive um, impact they make on the the industries and the players to come, or the settlers in in, in your example. So I, I get exactly yeah, I mean, what you're saying there. We like to think about, like, I think we all, today we imagine Google is like, they created this amazing thing. I mean, the reality is back in the nineties, they were late to the game. Yahoo and AOL and all these other people were doing stuff. Um, Google, Google was not clear that they would be the front runner. I think, the, I think the story is they tried to sell their company to Yahoo for a million bucks and got like turned down. You know, like they, you know, like they, they couldn't sell it for a million dollars. And so what made, what made Google the behemoth they are today? It's really not that they had a better technology. It's not that they were more innovative. It's that they had a culture that, that fostered really great execution and attracted and retrain, retained really great people over the long haul. Um, and, and so I, I think about that story a lot because it's, it's easy to think of a Google today as they were this forging ahead, doing these risky, innovative things. They really weren't. They were like middle of the pack that executed really mm-hmm. well and executed better than their competitors and made better decisions based on reality. I mean, Rich, I think we could go really deep on the technology conversation. Uh, I mean, they're like, my view is that the, the pioneers did come in the in the '90s, and there there were digital mortgage players that that came and went during the uh, during the the dot com boom. And um, I I think we could go pretty deep on on making an argument that the the players that have implemented. T- more meaningful technology strategies in 2015, 16, and now actually coming to market in 17, 18, 19 are, are the settlers and, and they are, um, are, are grabbing market share. And, and what I'm, what I'm hearing and, and, and some of the, the data we're seeing is some people are actually starting to see uh, 
returns on those investments and, and seeing their cost structure uh, come, come down significantly. And I, I know that's not represented for the, the whole industry so far, but um, I mean, I, I'm hearing some pretty interesting anecdotes and seeing some pretty interesting numbers that people are starting to, to reap some of the rewards there. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I mean, one of the companies that I think um, was down at at the Housing Wire Engage conference was Better Mortgage, and you know I've been following them very closely. I think they've done some really innovative things. They've invested a bunch of money. The question is, um, what is the cost been of that? I, I think at the conference, he's, he, the CEO said something along the lines of, you know, we got it really wrong. Um, the customer is not going to be ready for ten or fifteen years for a digital mortgage. Well, you know what? Congratulations to him for being able to admit that. I think a lot of people couldn't, which says, you know, I started a business and raised a bunch of money on this idea that I could predict the future and I was going to transform everything. You're hearing a very different story now. And, and there's, there's zero criticism of them in this. I'm glad that they're innovating on that. And I'm glad that I heard it because now I'm sitting here saying to myself, that's been my experience that the customer is not desiring a digital only mortgage. We, we, we innovated in a very small way in that. We got our teeth kicked in, pulled back. And then I'm watching Better Mortgage the last couple of years. I'm like, I don't know. I don't get it. I, I, I don't, man, if they're figuring this out, I'm really missing something. And so I, so I applaud them, one, for innovating, and then two, for dealing with reality. And, and it sounds like they're really changing course and, and figuring out a way forward with that. And I absolutely applaud that. This has been an unexpected theme on like all of the podcasts we've done in the last couple of months. But I think if you coming into 2019, people were, were their predictions for 2019 were the dis disruption of the loan originator and how, how technology uh, would, would be taking that job away. It has proven to be everything but that. And uh, it's 2019 is, is really in, in, in my perspective and the stories that we're, we're, we're writing, what we're covering, the people we're talking to is almost the, le the year of the loan originator and the, the conversations that kind of keep coming back to technology isn't disrupting, but enabling loan originators or at least the best loan originators to, to produce more volume, um, be more profitable and be stay in touch with their clients and, and past clients in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I think there's a conversation that gets missed in that, though, in that the, so, so the, the march of consumer preferences is, is, is probably that um, the loan officer, um, as they currently are, becomes less relevant over time. Now, what is this? As, as they currently are. As they currently are. Now, what is the speed of that? Is it 1% a year? Is it 20% a year? I, I have no idea. But, but I, here's what I think will, I think it's slightly more complicated. I, I think it has to do actually with the rate of change in the real estate industry. So if you look at, forgetting about refinances, but if we look at purchases, um, here's some interesting statistics that are very hard to find, but, but they say this. 70% of buyers, sellers and buyers, find their realtor through a um, referral from their sphere of influence or referral from their sphere of influence. So 70% of people sell their, they find their realtor um, through their sphere of influence or referral from their sphere of influence. Yep. 70% of purchase borrowers find their lender through a referral from their realtor. Okay, those numbers are directionally correct. It could be a little bit off. So really what we have to say is the, the, the role of the loan originator will not dramatically change until the role of the realtor changes. And I think we have to look at that industry, which really ties back to um, what happens with the exclusive listing. So right now we've got this crazy thing in the residential real estate industry, which is called 
exclusive listing. I say it's been there forever, but if somebody ever innovates around that, um, where the, the seller does not pay the buy side commission, because that's essentially what happens now, and it opens it up so it's a non-exclusive listing, I think you'll see that change a lot. I don't, I don't have any prediction as to whether or not that's going to come, but I think the, the role of the loan officer stays pretty stable so long as the role of the realtor stays stable. So the, the other big theme of the year, lending and real estate keep getting closer and closer. Rich, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think I could go on for a couple more hours. And, um, and if we were having a glass of wine, I could probably go on for four or five. Um, but uh, today we, uh, we have to wrap this up. So I uh, c- couldn't appreciate your perspective uh, anymore. And, and thank you for your time today. And a, and a big thank you to our Housing Wire readers and listeners. Uh, we are, are just getting started with this Housing News podcast and can't be more grateful for the folks who have gone to iTunes and subscribed to the show. Um, rated us. It helps rate us. Give us five stars. It helps more people discover the show, more lending professionals like yourself and, and Rich who hopefully uh, benefit from the, the conversation and the knowledge. A special thank you to Alcina Lloyd. Alcina is a reporter on our team at Housing Wire and also the producer of the Housing News podcast. Thank you, Alcina. And another thank you to Blend, our sponsor for the show. To learn more about Blend, visit blend.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.